Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I am David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. Thanksgiving Day. Officially Thanksgiving Day, although we celebrated yesterday. What about you? We had a great big ham yesterday that my son cooked up and the four of us in this house had a nice Thanksgiving dinner together. So that was our main Thanksgiving, but we're going to have a nice meal tonight, my wife and I. Ham. And lots Sounds to good. Give, lots to give thanks for. I mean, not everything, but uh, a lot. A lot. We do, Bruce. We are, we, fingers crossed, we're coming out of COVID. I mean, life does seem to be returning to normal in a lot of ways. So thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for the vaccines, honestly. And to all the people, all the scientists over the years, over the many decades who have worked on this and it all came together and produced these uh, these uh, vaccines that are getting the world back in order. Bruce, let's Absolutely. start out with the salary cap. Sure. So the Oilers... <laughs> The owners had a little problem this year because they got a couple of players, Oscar Kleffbaum and Alex Stalock, who can't play. But, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get you to explain it. But my the basic my basic understanding is you put them on LTR and uh, before the season starts here. And it's not like you get, you know, Kleffbaum makes 4.1 and Stalock makes what? What does he make? 1.785,000. Oh, just seven. You don't, it's not like you have 5 million extra to spend. The, the owners have already spent that, but by mm-hmm. putting them on LTIR now, they can actually spend really close to the $81.5 million cap yeah. and they're good. They, you know, they, they've already spent the money they were, they were going to pay to Clefbaum otherwise, you know, it's, let's say mm-hmm. that's Tyson Berry's contract and, right. and one other contract. But they can they can have Barry on the team essentially because they're putting Clefbaum on long term injured reserve right now. Still like the same thing, and they're right up against the cap. So is is that essentially it? Yeah, that's pretty much the ideal. Uh, there's two ways to go about it. You want to get your long term injured reserve um, contracts, if possible, you fit them on your opening roster before, and then you put the guy in LTIR the next day. Uh, the orders couldn't do that with Clefbaum. Like, they were way over the limit. So all along, they were going to put Clefbaum on LTIR. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, whatever roster they, they managed to put together for day one of the season, uh, Clefbaum was going to be on LTIR. And what that does is basically freezes the top end that they can go to at whatever today's value is. So the idea was to, to get the roster as close as possible without Clefbaum, Uh to uh, $81.5 million. And you know what? Ken Holland had it so tight that he was within $8,000 of, of the maximum with the moves that he's made, which include uh, waving Kyle Turris um, <laughs> and uh, bringing up Philip Robery, which also has other implications on the cap, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Um, but by shuffling that, he was he was within $8,000, and then he got a little bit of bad luck that William Lagesson, uh, who he waved yesterday, he's apparently hurt, so they're not allowed to send him to the minors, even though he's cleared waivers. So they had to put him on short-term injured reserve, and for that reason, they, ha- they were hoping to hold back Alex Daylock for one day and put him on LTIR tomorrow, but they had to put him there today. And he makes $60,000 more than yeah. Lagesson, so that means they came within 68,000 instead of within 8,000, which would have been a really fine cut. Uh, that's a little bit of bad luck, but you know, 60 grand. I mean, you're talking about under 100 grand out of 81 million. It's it's 
That's as good as he could have done. And what they didn't do was put Josh Archibald. They left Josh Archibald on the roster, you see, and now he can go on long-term injured reserve as early as tomorrow. And now they got $1.5 million in cap space to work with, which is essentially uh, Archibald's <clears throat> fund. So they were going to keep two of the three of them back, Staylock and Archibald, but the Lagason situation complicated it a little bit. And it's plenty complicated already. Like, my hat's off to Ken Holland and Bill Scott, uh, the Oilers capologists. Uh, you know, I think they handled this about as well as possible, given the, you know, they, they had this this uh, dead weight of Oscar Clefbaum's value contract, as so many of us referred to it over the years. It's turned out to be nothing but a pain in the butt these last couple of years and probably next year as well. That they got to figure out a way to... Uh, to bury as much of it as possible. And basically they buried over 4 million of Oscar Clefbaum's salary <clears throat> they're gonna be able to use for other players. So I think they did a, a very close to a masterful job and a little bit, the the, the Lagason injury just sliced a little bit off of that, but they were, they were able to cope, not bad at all. So job well done. I think that was that's some pretty, pretty uh, strong management now. You know, we dump on management from time to time when they do things that we don't agree with, like take all of Duncan Keith's salary, for example. <laughs> but flip that coin over when they do something right, damn right, we're going to say that they did it right. So well done, Ken Holland and Bill Scott, I say. Indeed. And um, yeah, so if Archibald, essentially, Bruce, if Archibald doesn't play this year, let's say, let's, mm -hmm. let's say worse comes to worse and he doesn't right. play this year. Um they would have his salaries like one. What is it? One point five, something like yes. that. And yes. uh, does that mean if they waited until the trade deadline, for instance, that they could sign a player, essentially who makes six, about six, seven, like six million dollars, because they'd have that one point five. They, they could have I a six million dollar contract. That is not possible. That is not possible <clears throat> because not they're using LTI. <clears throat> okay. So their daily limit is whatever they're using today. So it's not like they can build some up. Which okay. is why, in the best case scenario, if at all possible, you declare all of your contracts for, like some teams, they might cut down even to 20 players uh, so they can keep a contract, which they immediately dump into uh, long-term long injury reserve. Because then they do have that flexibility where you can go out and get a big fat contract at the trade deadline because there's only 40 days left in the season out of 180 or whatever it is. And, but with a team using LTI, that is not an option. They're basically stuck where they are dollar in, dollar out, I think is the term Holland used last year. Sure. All right. Well, if you have that incorrect, Ira Cooper, uh, our friend Ira Cooper will uh -huh. be correcting us, correcting you there, Bruce. So I'm, I'm not yeah, sure. Well, I'm quoting the, the, the real expert to me, which is uh, Hart Levine of Puckpedia, yeah. uh, who has uh, a brilliant site, puckpedia.com. Uh, with salary information, and he is an absolute fount of uh, wisdom and knowledge. And let's enjoy him while we have him, because some smart NHL team is going to hire Hart Levine before we know it. Bruce, there's uh, some roster changes. It looks like to start the year, at least, Ryan McLeod and uh, Tyler Benson, who we had high hopes for, have been beaten out. They're on the roster for now. But they have been beaten out for starting jobs, at least, by uh, Brendan Perlini and and Kyle Turris, Devin Shore. A combination of those three players are keeping those two guys as the 13th and 14th forwards on the team. And Colton Sevier. So if someone had said at the start of training camp, 
at you know opening day roster is going to be Colton Sevier, Brendan Perlini, Devin Shore, and Kyle Turris. I would I would have taken that bet. Said no, that's not going to happen. Like that's, but knowing uh, when I think about it, uh, and knowing Dave Tippett and his predilection for veteran hockey players, I'm not that surprised uh, by that move. Anyway, we're going to go through the roster line by line. And uh, just give a quick assessment. So the looks like we'll have Drysaddle, McDavid, and Puyu RV uh, as the top line. And again, knowing Dave Tippett, this isn't a huge surprise. He seems to he seems to go pull that trigger on putting McDavid and Drysaddle together again, pretty fast. You know, Bruce, they were pretty good last year together with Yamamoto. That was a f- absolutely dominating line in a short amount of playing time. They I think it was like an eighty-one percent goals for percentage. Just um, they had been they had been split up two years prior because they had been so weak defensively with Cassian together. Yep. I don't love I don't love them together. I still don't, but I, I'm okay with this. Like in the short term, like it, you know, it's it's the, it's not my favorite thing in the world to see these guys together. Right. I don't think it's best for the team. I don't think it's best for them defensively. I think they get distracted and forget who what they're what the def, you know. Who, they forget who's supposed to cover the damn defensive slot, to put it bluntly, and um, no one does, unless it's Yamamoto. But they score about five goals an hour, David. So <clears throat> it covers off yeah. some of that at least. And then they give up four point nine. <laughs> anyway, Bruce, that could change. They could really. They oh, could yeah. be. Maybe this will be just fantastic this year. So I, I, I'll go in with a like you know a fresh perspective and let's see how this works. These are. Three fantastic hockey players together. Pugliarvi has picked up his game, picked up his game a lot. So what do you think? Well, I think that um, that's today's lines. Uh, but yeah. if you go all the way back to 2016-17, which is five seasons ago now, not counting the one that's just about to start, and three uh, very experienced NHL coaches in Todd McClellan, Ken Hitchcock, and now Dave Tippett. And you can say what you want. And I've had people tell me that San Shell recycling the coaches and that, uh, that they, for whatever reason, they're, they're doing the wrong thing. Well, to me, there's not so much a wrong, the wrong thing to do would be to nail Leon Dreisaitl into one position. I think at this point in time, he is such a multi-purpose weapon. He can play any forward position. He can kill you from either wing or center. He can kill you with McDavid or he can kill you if he's on his own line. And having all those options available is a hell of a headache for the other coach and the other team that Edmonton could come at him. And I call it vertical and horizontal. Vertical where you have them coming out one after the other horizontally where they're up together at the same time and dominating. And, you know, there's arguments in favor of both. But you know what? All those coaches have done both. They haven't just strictly stuck to one or the other. They might get stuck to, uh, stuck to one for months on end, but there's not one season in the last five that you won't find Drysaddle to spend plenty of time apart and plenty of time together and you know it's leon really who's the flexible one and the coaches are keeping his options open and keeping the other coaches uh, uh on a steady diet of excedrin you know i don't mind it uh which whichever one they choose i do have a slight preference i like 
uh, Leon at center on his own line and then teaming up on the power play. I love them teaming up right after a penalty kill, which is something that Dave Tippett's been doing. Uh, you know, there are ways to get them together. I, I, I like them teaming up in overtime, you know, in special team situations. Um, and I think ultimately in long-term success, uh, you know, I was raised on the Gretzky-Messier school of running up two power centers, one right after the other, and deal with it, other guys. So I think in a long-term playoff scenario, that may be the way it's going to work best. But you're going to see plenty of both and enjoy it instead of arguing every time that the coach does one or the other. I mean, this is what he's doing. I mean, he's a veteran, experienced NHL coach. He does things for a reason. <clears throat> and we might not always divine all of those reasons, but... Uh, uh, he, he like mixing things up is a, is not the worst thing to be doing. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Just have one of those forwards cover the damn defensive slot. You know, you can be the two best attacking yeah. players on earth, but mm -hmm. if you don't cover the defensive slot, your line's going to get scored on a lot. And that's been the story of these two. Like, honestly. Um, so let's see if they can do better at that. Um, and I also like the, the, you know, it's a little different now with the second line. Because suddenly you're not absolutely bereft. It's not the top line and then, you know, top line or bust where you have this top line and then you have three lines of, oh, God, like slow-moving players who can't make a pass on the attack or combine on a pass. You had individual players like Nugent Hopkins could always make a pass, but who is he going to pass to? Now he's he's going to be teamed up. He was sick today, but he's gonna, apparently going to be back. He's going to be teamed up with Kyler Yamamoto and Zach Hyman. I mean, that is a good line. That that some teams don't in the NHL might not have a first line as good as that. Most of them will have close to that, but that's a that's a, you know a passable almost first line. Nugent Hopkins, Hyman, and Yamamoto. So um, as a second line, it's it's a strong second line. It's a very strong second line, and we'll see. You know, Nugent's far into his career. I haven't loved him as a defensive center either, uh, it, but um, we'll see how he does in, in this role. Hyman is just a really, uh, Mike Back, Babcock just talked about him as a, I, I thought it was an apt description as it play, comes out and plays a heavy hockey game. And that's what I've seen too. You know, someone who just works hard and, and hits, hits puck protects, four checks hard. Yamamoto due for a bounce back season. So I like that second line and Let's see how this works. It could work for a while. Yeah, I'm just going to finish your thought on the first line about they're covering the defensive slot. And, you know, and that was really a problem in, in 1920, and that was when yeah, uh, at, 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 at um, New Year's they changed things up, and that was when they put the dynamite line together and, and uh, broke up the McDavid... Uh, Drysdale Cassian line, which has never been put back together, and last year McDavid and Drysdale uh, on their shifts they outscored the other team 33-17. So this isn't giving everything back; it's only giving half of it back. And by on a per 60 basis, 5.77 goals scored to 2.97 against. Well, that's acceptable goals against, basically six to three every 60 minutes. So you yeah. can see that being a real strong, you know, uh, if you if you got them together for 20 minutes in a game, chances are you're going to win that that part of the game by one goal, and then you just need the rest of your team and your special teams to saw off, and you got the win. 
So that, that's a powerful magnet for a coach to. to yeah, and, to and I've made this point before. I think it was Yamamoto who was the glue player on that line, who often, surprisingly, was the guy filling in in the defensive slot. He'd okay. often be down there. Uh, covering for them. I don't know if Pugliarvi has the defensive awareness that Cutter Yamamoto does. We'll we'll find out. But it's it does help to have that third player who's really sure. thinking about that, and and can fulfill that role. And Yamamoto did it. So um, Pugliarvi might be asked to do, it, or McDavid's just going to take it on himself as the you know he's the nominal center on the line um, to take over. <coughs> excuse me, take over that role. Well, in a perfect uh, world, is Yari Curry. And then, I mean, then then you have your, that team had the horizontal and the vertical because had two great forwards on each two lines. You know. Yeah. Well, I think you could have that here if if Yamamoto steps up as a great forward or mm-hmm. Nugent Hopkins. You you know you have Drysaddle, Nugent Hopkins, um, and yeah, Pulleyarvi and McDavid with Hyman and Yamamoto kind of filling in and helping out. Um, the third line: Bruce, Derek Ryan, Colton Sevier, and Warren Fogle. What do you think? Well, I, th- I think as of right now, Colton Sevier is a placeholder. And he is, uh, there's no, like he hasn't signed a contract yet. And it seems like it's a done deal. Like on the surface, it looks like he's made the team. Look, I mean, he's practicing with the third line. But the fact is that Cassian has, uh, hasn't been a practice uh, since he bonked his head on the ice uh, in the game here on Thursday night against Vancouver. And he didn't fly to Vancouver. Reports are he's he's feeling good and he's close. And it's not cast in stone that he won't just be cleared to play uh, uh, for Wednesday's season opener. And that leaves no room at the end for Colton Seager. They still haven't signed the guy. And they, they uh, if they do sign him, then they're going to have to make some sort of transaction, either waive him or waive somebody else to make room for him. Or Ryan else McLeod. make a move on Ryan McLeod, who they don't have to waive, uh, and send him down. And Ryan McLeod, he's he's also in that camp where he has a little bit of bonus money due. So it's best for the team that he was on the roster to begin the season, uh, and it was big for the team that uh, Philip Broberg was on the on the roster to open the season, because that having those bonus babies on the roster at the beginning of the season. Uh, uncomplicates things if you call them up later in the season. You can send them down. You don't have to. You don't have to waive them. But when you bring them back up, you don't have to account for the bonus because they were on the roster at the start. It's just a subtle little wrinkle, but uh, they covered that off today by calling up on paper Philip Brobery and sending down on paper Kyle Turris. When in reality, neither one of those guys uh, checked out of their hotel room. You know, in in terms of uh, uh, going from Edmonton to Bakersfield or vice versa, just strictly a paper transaction to to uh, maximize the uh, salary implications. Yeah, I I think my bet, Bruce, will be they'll sign Sevier and they'll send McLeod to the AHL. Very possible. Um, I, I don't think you want to have Ryan McLeod sitting around in the press box in Edmonton. That's that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea last year with Bouchard. It's a bad, it would be a bad idea this year with, with, uh, I think it's a good idea with Benson. Listen, he's done, Tyler Benson has done everything he can do in the AHL. Right. It's, and if they send him down, they could, they could lose him on waivers. I don't know if they would, but they could. So I, I don't mind it with Benson sitting in the press box at this point, but McLeod, he should be playing and he, he still has, 
you know, it was just interesting. I think it was a bit of a sign of maturity, the fact that he played so ineffectively throughout the preseason and then came up with a big game against Vancouver when, when he had nothing to lose and just, you know, had to go for it. Good for him for doing that and showing that, but it was a, I think this was a lost opportunity for him. If he had come out and played with that kind of moxie right from the start, gone for it, he'd probably be on this team by now. But it was Devin Shore who, who clearly outplayed him and Perlini, Brendan Perlini, who clearly outplayed Tyler Benson. So the more mature veteran players, um, Perlini's not that much older than Benson, but the they've been around a bit longer, uh, been through a number of organizations, have had to make more first impressions in different places, and they did it. They came in and they and they won. I think they fair and square won those jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, Sevier, I have been less enamored with. I mean, he made a hell of a pass there to Perlini on a goal the other game. Mm-hmm. But apparently he's, the coach likes him, so, you know, Maybe I'm missing something here, Bruce, but maybe maybe he's mm-hmm. a player. So I think he, in, unless there's a player who pops up on the waiver wire, I'm just trying to check the waiver wire to yeah. see Curtis Gabriel. That's a name we've heard about. Hey, he got waived today. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And he, he's a, he's a he's um enforcer type, um like uh you know a grind fourth line grinder, but he's uh, um a little bit of a throwback. Uh, he's a good guy, very interesting story, but he's, uh, I'm not sure that unless you're thinking your team is a little bit soft and you want to toughen it up, I mean, he would certainly do that, but, uh, I mean, that's the choice they have. They, they don't have to sign Sevier. They could sign somebody else, right? Yeah. Sevier, they brought in, I think they brought him in about the minute that they heard about Josh Archibald's, uh, uh, situation. And stance on the vaccine thought, well, if we're not going to have, we can't count on having Josh Archibald for all or even any games. We better have somebody else who can do the same things. And Sevier uh, checks many of the boxes. I agree with you. He doesn't have the speed, certainly not the ferocious hitting uh, that uh, Archibald brings. He's decent on the penalty kill. I'm not sure he's as good as Archibald, but he's that style of player, you know. Uh, uh, you see him in the dressing room, and he's got I'm a Dave Tippett style player tattooed on his chest. You know, he's he's uh, he's just the kind of player that Tippett had in Arizona for years. You go, who's that guy that just scored the winning goal against us? Yeah. <laughs> Here's a guy who just was put on waivers. I think, if I'm reading this correctly, Chris Wagner of Boston. Oh yeah, he's a hard nosed. He's guy. a hard nosed oh. guy. He's 29 now. He had a down year last year. No. Um, in terms of his physical play, he wasn't hitting as much as he had in previous years. Mm-hmm. But um, 51.9% on the dot. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a hard, like that's the kind of guy, right shots, shoots right, position center, six what feet, 200. Yeah, he got he got a, almost, a, he was in eight, he, he, he's taken a lot more face-offs in previous years. Last year, he was down to about 80. He just took oh. 80 face-offs. But in the previous year, he had taken 250. Um, so that's the kind of player, Bruce. Like, I, I think there is a possibility the Oilers will claim someone on waivers and um, not go with Sevier. Because Wagner would be, he'd be an enticing, that would be an enticing thought. Well, uh, he's got a, he's got a cap. Physical, one, physical one player like him. 1.35 million dollar cap hit 
uh, for two more years, so this year and next year. Yeah. But if you're thinking there's no way Archibald plays all year, like they got good intel on whatever his condition is, uh, myocarditis, and what his, what his forecast is, uh, I mean, they're already in a situation where he'll have to recover from that and probably then get vaccinated before they would be in position to activate him and count on him to play all the games. So if there's another option out there for under $1.5 million, it checks all the same boxes. Like I say, it doesn't have to be Colton Sevier. He's the guy that's here now. He's not signed yet. So they could pick off a contract. And that's an interesting name. Wagner's been a hard, hard player I've for a them. few years. He used to play with yeah. the Ducks. Eh? And, and I've, but maybe he signed a three-year deal last year and, Maybe something happened. If his stats had a had a fall, I haven't had a chance to even look. They at did. It. They well, he only had a lot last year. Yeah, five points in forty-one games, and mm. yeah. Um, so who knows? You'd have to be you'd have to be watching this player and have a good scouting report on him. You're right. Curtis Gabriel is just kind of an old-time slugger. I don't see the orders going for that. But Chris Wagner, a player like that, I could see them thinking about that and. <clears throat> there might be someone else. I'm not familiar with all the names on this list here. I don't really know. Like. Dylan Gambrell, maybe he's the guy. I have no idea. Okay. <clears throat> That's why they have the pro scouts, Bruce. Um, let's talk about the fourth line, Shore, Turris, and Perlini. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard Mark Spector critique this line, saying that he, he his concern with it, it doesn't have that physicality that, you you know, some, kind of the energy that you would like. I, I do like the fact that all three of these guys can play some hockey. Kyle Turris, yeah. based on his preseason can still play some hockey not based on his last season but he he was making plays in the preseason he looks like he's dropped some weight or added some some athleticism like he's in better shape to play hockey and uh is is making some plays and if he isn't benson will slot right in there in a second you can count on that so um we got short center you're gonna deal with that background noise <clears throat> devon short center Bruce, uh, we've talked about this in the past. I like Devin Shore as a winger. I do not like Devin Shore as a center. He has in the past not shown the ability to make those quick reads at center, quick uh, defensive reads. I'm just talking about how Devin Shore struggles defensively as a center, and that's my concern. Perlini, yeah. he's done everything, you know. He's and he he's been okay on defense so far. That defense so far, that's my concern with him. He's obviously got some offensive game. He's a big guy. He can skate, shoot, and can forecheck. Mm. This could be an it's 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 an interesting line, Bruce. In that, if um, you know, you kind of have it's it's not a score. It's a line that you would expect to score some goals now and then. Put it that way. Oh, sure. And all these like guys have a game, bit of offensive game. <laughs> Yeah, every game, one goal a game, but it's it's a it's a line with some a bit of offensive zip, and if if with Benson or McLeod checking in, it would be the same. So I like it. I like this. I, I you know heading in, I'm I'm I could see them bringing in another player, but it's we'll see how these guys do. They've they've earned it in preseason, so I'm I'm positive about what, this development. It's yeah, it's odd that you know the the trio has been together since day one at camp. And at day one at camp, they had uh, those guys on 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 line 4A, and they had the uh, Bakersfield line of Benson, McLeod, and Marodi as line 4B. And all three of the guys, the NHL veteran guys, outplayed all three of the Bakersfield trio that we all had high hopes for that were ready to go. 
And this is quoting Dave Tippett from the Oilers uh, website today. McLeod doesn't have to clear waivers, but we think he's close to making our lineup. I think Shore played better than him in camp, so Shore is going to get going to start in that position. On the left wing, we had a number of guys there, and Perlini played better than Benson during camp. As it looks right now, depending on some injury stuff, McLeod and Benson will be the odd guys out at forward. So that's the injury stuff that may be involving Cassian, to tell the truth, and then they have to resolve whether they're signing Sevier, picking up another player, or maybe just giving uh, you know giving Benson a uh, a game, working him into the lineup that way. But uh, and all that um, all that uh, coach says about Sevier is that uh, Holland's had some talks with him just to see where he's at, so we'll see where that goes in the next couple of days. So they're playing it cool, and they're, you know, they're waiting to see if they need him right off the hop or, or you know, come to some kind of terms. I mean, last year they signed Devin Shore, who was a PTO, uh, on the first day of the season, and they waived him uh, right away. I think they signed him actually on the second day of the season. Then they waived him right away. He cleared waivers, and by the weekend, he was playing games. And now he's got a two-year contract. You know, I mean, it worked out great for him from the PTO position, and that's where that's where uh, Sevier is. But uh, for now, I mean, the right wing, Kyle Turris, technically a member of the Bakersfield Condors as we speak, uh, was going to get recalled and placed right into uh, right into the into the uh, lineup, and he'll go right into the fourth line. Uh, and that, I mean, I wrote a post about this yesterday when they waived Turris, and my conclusion was he'll be starting the season at right wing with uh, Shore and Perlini, and they practiced that way today, and it's, by all accounts, that's going to be the trio on uh, on Wednesday night. I guess on the PK they have um, they've got uh, Nugent Hopkins and Hyman, Fogel and Ryan, Shore and Yamamoto. Yamamoto, you're right. So uh, they don't even need you know to traditionally you have these bottom line guys on the uh, PK, but the only one that would be on it would be Shore. Perlini and Turris would not be. Thankfully, in Torres's case, I mean, he'd be on the second power play, and so might Perlini if he, you know, if he keeps scoring, he's going to be yeah, get more opportunities. Yeah. You think, but yeah. yeah, who knows how long that's going to last? But he scored long enough to to uh, to make the club, and more power to him. So, defense, Bruce, there's not a lot of surprises. Slater Cuckoo has beat out at least initially Chris Russell, who was injured uh, in, in camp. Uh, Cuckoo's beat him out to start the year. I thought Slater Cuckoo was their most uh, uh, consistent defenseman in the preseason. I thought he played very well. I thought he played well last year when he was when he was healthy. I th- I, I like the player as a third pairing guy. He's he's fairly big. He's decent at puck moving. He's kind of okay at defending. He's got well, I don't know if he's got an okay shot. Like a, he doesn't seem to be much of a shooter, but he he's an okay player. And uh, as a third pairing D man. Works for me big time. I think Chris Russell, I, I like him in kind of the utility role at this point in his career. The, there's not a great amount of offensive play with Russell. This is the Oilers' best group of passing defensemen since probably 2008-09, I'm guessing, Bruce. Um, when yeah. they had Surrey and um, 
Gilbert, Visnovsky, Gilbert, and Grabeshkov. And Grabeshkov, that's right. So this this is a better group because they also had Steos and Smead, who weren't great no. passing the puck necessarily. This is by this is the best group of passing defensemen on the team since 2005-06, when they had a you know Chris Pronger, who was like the ultimate, you know, just such a great quarterback of the team. You know, he was the spine of the team, and Spasek was a great little player. Bruce, I'm a little bit, um, I'm, I'm up, I'm more optimistic heading into the season than I was before the season started about Keith and CeCe. I really did like their last couple games, especially Keith's play with the puck. I was just so impressed with how smart he was on a number of occasions with the puck, moving the puck. And I don't, I can't speak yet to their defensive play. That's going to take some study over a number of games to see, you know, we saw some screw ups. We saw some big screw ups from both of them um, in the preseason. And we'll see how this plays out in the regular season. But I, I really liked Keith's offensive game. And I wasn't, I, I was okay with just the overall impression of CeCe, although he made a number of mistakes. I liked his size and I liked his speed. And I thought I liked his activity. Like he gets involved in battles and he was, I was more, I was fearful that he was going to be worse than uh, he, he appears to be. So that's where I'm at with those two. How about you? Oh, I did. I saw a lot to like on Saturday night, and I know that you could look at the at the statistical output of that game and go, but they're Corsi, and uh, you wouldn't be wrong in terms of it wasn't good. Um, but guess what? They and basically all the players on the Oilers, because of the way when we talked about this last podcast, yeah, about how uh, the Oilers left all of their strong players at, at home, their strongest players, David Drysaddle. Nurse Barry, and even Mike Smith, uh, who I think contributes to uh, Oilers, the, the movement of the puck by the Oilers in the defensive zone. They didn't have Smith in that game either. And without Drysaddle, they poured out a bunch of centers who went a combined three for 20 in defensive zone faceoffs in that game. Well, guess what? Vancouver had the puck a lot. And if you want to blame the defenseman because the centers couldn't win a damn draw, well, be my guest. But I mean, there's 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 uh, uh, mitigating circumstances always. And in that game where Vancouver had the stronger lineup, the the last change, the home crowd, and the score effects of being behind by three goals for most of the game. Well, guess what? Vancouver was shooting the puck more than Edmonton. When Edmonton had it, their their tendency was to try and keep it and not even bother to shoot it. They had a bunch of possessions where they never got a shot, but they sure took a bunch of time off the clock. So it was an oddball game and not a game that I would trust the statistics even a little bit. Like, they survived. I mean, it was one of those games where you need to survive and, and they well, did. Well, the statistics the measure, reason, yeah. they measure five players on the ice, right? Like, yeah. when you actually well, looked at Keith's, Keith's mm-hmm. game, he was, he was making good plays, generally speaking. He had a few fuse that weren't good but most most of the time he was handling the puck very well and so you know it's not his fault they lose a face off in their zone there's suddenly five shot attempts you know what, well, what's he, what's he going to do about it he's he got to cover his man he didn't so he, get any been, shifts yeah. with, uh, with mcdavid and dry moreover he didn't get the coverage uh from nurse and barry that that was the other aspect of that game. And th- this was a bit of a tell. You had all these guys playing up the lineup, as I, as I mentioned last podcast, playing, you know, tougher competition than they might, but also playing more minutes than they normally do. 
and Keith and, and Cece played 25 minutes each. Well, all the guys had played more minutes than they normally do. Right, it was right at the end of the game that the order started flagging. Like they were in control comfortably through 50 minutes, and it was only that last 10 where these where they were playing. You know that. Uh, so uh, I, I take mostly positives from that game on on uh, Saturday, even though the stat sheet in certain places was pretty ugly. Three to two. Is, yeah. Such That's as a like, stat I like. <laughs> yeah, I thought the orders played. A, I I really liked the way they played that game. I thought they really competed hard and played their positions well. And there was even without the the great players, there was lots of people who were able to take and make a pass under yeah. pressure, which is unusual for an Oilers team. You know, this is a team that's been marked by slow players who who you know can't pass the puck very well. Uh, that's the that's the def, decade of darkness definition. You know, as long as as well as placing you know young talented players in over their heads in tough spots um we don't have that team anymore here in edmonton this is a team with a lot of skill a lot of players who have good hockey sense and can make plays and that's what i saw a team without its stars who played a really smart game and i i was impressed first we have smith and koskinen and that mike smith uh my new favorite player on the oilers uh had a great preseason We'll see how things go. We will see how things. Bob Stoffer of the uh, of the Oilers of Oilers now is predicting the Oilers will trade their first pick this year at some point. Uh, you know, and the, and the most obvious thing at this point would be to bring in another goalie at some point. Um, but um, they might need another forward. They might need another uh, defenseman along the way as well. You know, I'm thinking about this Chris Wagner thing. We'll see, it'll be a real tell on what they think of Ryan McLeod. If they bring in Chris Wagner, it would be a it would be a, a sign to me that they oh, Ryan just needs another year in the HL. McLeod could just benefit from that, and we'll bring in this veteran guy, two year deal. Um, yeah. You know, um, I'm saying I, he doesn't I, I, get claimed because of that. Yeah, it is kind of a bit of a poison pill. It's a it's it's not a league minimum salary. He's he's a fourth line he's a fourth line winger earning about four hundred thousand dollars too much isn't he, so there's that to consider. But he I I mean I just have a very good impression of that particular player. So it, and I could be completely wrong because maybe he's not that player anymore and and maybe he's lost something. He's two hundred twenty five thousand dollars over the maximum that can be buried. So that's kind of one threshold. Is that one point one two five? Yeah. So the comparison I was making when we were discussing him earlier, and you got to look at him, is that he's making a little bit less than Josh Archibald. Can he do many of the same things that Josh Archibald can? Why, well, yes, he could. So maybe, you know, you could think about it in those terms. But I'm not sure with a, another year beyond this one on his contract, if he was starting to slide last year, you don't necessarily want a two-year deal on, on a guy who's on the downhill slope. Yeah, he is 29. He plays a physical game. You don't know what his injury history here is. And um, that said, he can. He, I like that physical. He plays a hard game, and I really like that. So mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he could. He could. He he does fill in for Archibald. He is that. He is that guy, or he has been that guy. Whether he still is again, that's up for the you know the Oilers pro scouts. We'll have a good sense of that much better than we would. All right, Bruce. Uh, any final thoughts? Are we ready to roll to Wednesday night? Yeah, we're getting we're getting close. I mean, this this 
it's always a fascinating time when the, when the managers are trying to set their rosters at the beginning of the year. These last cuts and the, and the waivers, you know, I think there was four guys picked up on waivers today, um, uh, which William Lagason was not one. I'm still a little bit confused as if Lagason's hurt, why did they have to waive him? But the good news is now he's cleared, so they can really do what they want when he comes off injured reserve. Um but I glossed a little bit over the RNH line earlier because I went back to remake a point on yeah. on uh, McDavid and Drysaddle. But Nugent Hopkins has two C. Some criticize him as not being able to carry his own line. Well, guess what? He the way it's set up now with Zach Hyman on his wing, uh, you know, he's got other skill on this line. He's you know he's proven in the past when he played with Taylor Hall and Jordan Everly years ago. That when he's a complementary player with uh, with star wingers, he's just fine. And if you put him on a line with uh, uh, you know two other little guys, or you put him on a line with uh, you know um, uh, uh, borderline talent, say okay, you're our second line, and you got to go up against the second toughs of the other team. Um, that's a tall order. But with Nugent and Zach Hyman together, and and Connor Yamamoto is a darn good player. In his own right, I think that's a line that could hold its own. Agreed. Uh, that's why I'm okay with this. It's a, it's, we have a different kind of second line situation, so mm-hmm. um, could be interesting to see. All right, so they play the Canucks Wednesday. That's the first game, eh? Yep. Wednesday against the Canucks, Saturday against the Flames. Season actually starts Tuesday, so the Oilers play day two and day five. And the game against the Calgary on Saturday night is Calgary's first game of the season. So they're they're chilling now for almost a week chomping at the bit to play uh to play the Oilers. Uh with a tiny bit of news involving that game that Blake Coleman of Calgary's off season signing, he got suspended for the first game of the season, so he's gonna miss the game against Edmonton. So hard luck there, Blake, you know. <laughs> this but, uh, it's it's a slow start. They play every third day for the first. They play uh, next game is on Tuesday the nineteenth. After that, so it's just, and then they start getting into the every second day with a few back to backs. This in from Kurt Levins, our cult of hockey mm-hmm. colleague. Quote: The bold predictions seem to be in vogue this season. So here goes number one: Oilers finish top eight overall. Kurt, that is not that bold. I'm going to say that's not that bold. Kurt's other predictions. That's not that, yeah. Yessi Pugliarvi scores 30 goals. That's bold. That's a bold prediction, especially coming from Kurt. Kurt was not, not, if I'm recalling this correctly, Kurt wasn't necessarily on team Yessi Pugliarvi for a while there. So, Uh, and his third prediction, Zach Hyman makes the Canadian Olympic Club, which I think is a bold prediction. Those are the two final ones are bold. But yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, get, it's possible. We'll see are, if he. Those are bold font predictions. Blast him. He's not. Hyman won't make it if he's not playing with McDavid regularly on the top line. Like it'll be because yeah. of that, because he fits in with McDavid. So, but that Playing could easily. Nugent, he won't be filling the net. They'll be holding their own, but not necessarily pumping them in. Yeah. Yeah, Nuge would have an outside chance too at the Canadian Olympic team. Not a great chance, but he'd be Very on the list. Marginal. There's a million centers. Yeah, well, he, I he guess I mean he wing. can play wing, but yeah, yeah, 
and he'd be good on the big ice, say, eh? because he's so fast. He's he's a. I did big not. Eye. We learn the Olympics are going to be on oh, the NHL the, yeah. size ice. I made the mistake again. We made that. I made it again. So there you go. It's NHL size ice. Alrighty, Bruce. Thank goodness the season is here. Our next podcast will be after Game One. On and we got a. We got to do the scoring chances. We kind of took off the preseason, didn't we? Got to remember all the. Oh, there's no way to do it. There was streaming. No chance could we ever do justice to that project, and there just wasn't enough point to it to even attempt it. But I'm kind of I'm looking forward to it in the sense that I get a a whole different uh, take on a game based on our analysis of those. Chances. Yeah, I feel a lot. I'm going to f- start feeling a lot better about our take on the game overall because that really helps to go over that those key plays and really understand them and dig in there. Bruce, thanks for talking tonight. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>